Last week we talked about grace. We talked about this little story in John chapter 8 where a woman is caught in sin and she's brought before Jesus and they, and they say, Jesus, should we go with the Roman law or the Mosaic law? They're trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus writes on the ground first and then he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. In other words, it's not about the Mosaic law or the Roman law. It's about your heart and your relationship with God. And one by one, the text says they peeled off. They dropped their stones and they went away until the text says only Jesus was left. We believe last week we got to that point when it was just us and Jesus. No other condemning voices out there. And, and when Jesus turns to the woman, he says, where are your condemners? Is no one left? And she said, no one, sir. And he replied, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And when we heard that as a word to us, Jesus speaking to us last week, I, I don't condemn you. And we also heard it as a word through us to other people that, that we ought to see people through the cross and what Jesus did for them. This week, I want to move forward from that message by talking about one of the enemy's greatest weapons to neutralize grace in our lives. It's shame. Now, I know that some of you wrestle with shame more than others, but all of us get targeted by shame. And here's the deal with shame. Shame grows in the shadows. It it finds strength in darkness. And so the only way for us to make room for God to heal people from shame this morning is if we bring it out into the light. Which means I'm going to have to be vulnerable today. And I don't really like that because I, I think if you knew the real me, I fear you might not like me. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't, you know, be as impressed with me. And and some of you are thinking, well, quite frankly, Tim, we're not that impressed with you anyway. Okay. So what do we do? You know what we often do? We often keep people at arm's length, sometimes even, especially at church, we wear a mask. Sometimes even pastors, especially pastors, to hide what we think we look like. And sometimes it's a religious mask. And sometimes it's no more than what we post on social media that is designed to make us look better or more profound than we really are. All of which, the arm's length, the mask, the carefully crafted post, it all comes from shame. Now, let me be clear about something. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt, it's good for us to be able to feel guilt, right? Guilt is about behavior. Guilt says, what I did was wrong. Shame, on the other hand, is about being. It's ontology. It says, I am wrong. See, guilt can say, I made a mistake. Shame will say, I am a mistake. Shame will will go far enough to say, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not talented enough to be loved for who I am. Lewis Meads wrote a book entitled Shame and Grace. Kind of goes with our two messages the last two weeks. And he says this, shame gives us a vague disgust with ourselves, which in turn feels like a hunk of lead on our hearts. Have you ever felt that? You, do you, some people know what I'm talking about. The disgust, the, 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 the hunk of lead. And people can feel shame for a number of reasons. Well, the first is sin. You know, there's sin. You, you feel shame because of sin. Sin produces shame. It could be just past failures. Like maybe you were working towards this goal most of your life, and then you didn't quite make it, and you failed, and, and then you, you feel shame because of that. Some people feel shame because of abuse that they've suffered or what other people have done to them. Uh, Some people feel shame because of divorce. Some people feel shame because of crushing debt. You know, like if you're around, a lot of people are doing quite well, and you're just under this, you can't get, you're on the cycle, you can't get out of this credit card debt, and you, you feel shame. 
For some people, it's addictions. In fact, addictions gain their power from shame. It's one of their biggest tools to, to keep us in addiction. One friend of mine, you know, he, he never felt like he was good enough for his dad. No matter what sport he played, no matter how well he played, he could have been the MVP. And on the way home, his dad would be telling him what he did wrong. His dad clearly had not seen the Shazam movie and knows that when your dad does that, you become an evil supervillain. Shame. Anytime you take anything from your past, any pain, any, any hurt, any sin, any failure, and you take it as your identity, you have embraced shame. And I want to tell you, shame can take you to a dark place. I know this from experience. I, I said I had to be vulnerable. There have been times in my life where because of failure or whatever, I, I felt such great shame. It's such a dark place. And, and I'm almost ashamed to even tell you this, except I'm not because I know I'm not all that different from several people here. And we actually are in pretty good company. You know, some of God's best friends over the year wanted to give up. Some of God's best friends, you read the Bible. Some of them dealt with so much shame, they said, Lord, just take my life. Do you know what that feels like? I do. Moses was like that. Moses got to a place, he said, Lord, if you love me at all, you'll kill me and not make me face my own ruin because of shame. Moses, he's one of, the great, he's one of God's best friends ever. One of the greatest leaders of all time, Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of all time, gets in this, you know, scuffle with Jezebel. And he says, just kill me, God. Just go ahead, take me. I'm ashamed. Just take me home. Or or Jonah, one of the greatest evangelists of all time. I mean, he went to the most wicked empire ever in the history of the earth, to the capital city of Nineveh. He preached, and everybody repented. That's pretty good preaching. Next day, kill me, God. Just go ahead and take me home. Shame can take you to a dark place. What I'm talking to you about this morning is not benign. This is a malignant cancer. There have been times in my life where I've allowed my failures or my mistakes to be the verdict on who I am or what I am worth. And when that happens, you know what happens? Shame. When you allow any sin or any pain, maybe it was caused by somebody else, maybe you caused it yourself. When you allow it to be the verdict on who you are, you've been infiltrated by shame. And it's not benign. I no longer see shame as some kind of innocent bystander or some abstract emotion or neutral feeling. No, now I see shame as one of the key tools of Satan to destroy our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. It's one of the primary weapons of the enemy to paralyze us and our gifts. God has given all of us gifts, but some of us don't use our gifts. You know why? Because shame. Kirk Thompson wrote a book called The Soul of Shame. I would commend it to you. I've been deeply affected, deeply affected my thinking. In fact, in some places in this message where I don't even quote him, his fingerprints are all over it. He wrote the following. Shame is just a consequence of something our first parents did in the Garden of Eden. Though it is that, it's more. 
It is the emotional weapon that evil uses to, number one, corrupt our relationships with God and with each other, and two, disintegrate any and all gifts of vocational vision and creativity. Shame, therefore, is not simply an unfortunate, random, emotional event that came out of the primordial evolutionary soup. It is both a source and a result of evil's active assault on God's creation. Wow. Do you see what he's saying? Shame isn't neutral. It's personal. It's diabolical. It is actively trying to destroy God's image in the world and his gifts in us. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Grief Observed. He said, I sometimes think that shame, mere, awkward, senseless shame, does as much towards preventing good acts and straightforward happiness as any of our vices can do. Did you hear that? Obviously, sin will, will keep you from living the way God wants you to, but he's saying sometimes the shame, after you've already prayed and asked for forgiveness of the sin, sometimes the shame does more damage than the sin itself. So let me be very clear about my goal this morning. My goal is for you to experience freedom from shame. That's my goal. Maybe even in areas, maybe especially in areas, you didn't even know shame was at work because often shame operates at a subconscious, emotional, feeling, gut level that you can't even put into words. And so here's what happens. Shame sabotages relationships. It severs relationships. And some of you may have struggled in your relationship with God and you didn't even know why. Or maybe in your relationship with your spouse or or your children or something else, and you didn't even know why. But it's possible that it could be shame at work. So my goal today is to just educate you, not just, you know, give you a lecture about shame. I, I have something altogether different. I want you to experience actual freedom from shame. And it's not just me that wants that. Jesus wants that for you. Galatians 5 verse 1, it was for freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Why did Christ set us free? For freedom, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Some people are burdened even though Christ has set them free. They're burdened by slavery to shame because you were called to be free. This is one of the clearest, most refreshing statements of Jesus' will for our lives. You know, sometimes I wonder what God's will for my life is. Here it is. Pretty clear. Jesus' will for you is freedom. He doesn't want you bound By shame. John Piper, commenting on that verse in Galatians, put it this way. He said, this is God's will for you. Your freedom. Uncompromising, unrelenting, indomitable freedom. For this Christ died. For this he rose. For this he sent his son. There is nothing he wills with more intensity under the glory of his own name than this. Your freedom. Jesus wants that. So how do we enjoy freedom from shame? Well, if you have your Bibles, will you turn them with me to Genesis chapter 2? I want to tell you a story. We're going to call this the story of shame. And there's only two movements. I know what some of you are thinking. Last week was Easter, and we had three points plus two bonus points. Right? Otherwise known as five, but not here at New Life. It's three plus two bonus. Today we have only two points. Number one, the birth of shame. If you were to take the time, and we don't have the time to do this right now, but if you were to take the time and just read Genesis 1 and 2 with an eye towards what God is like, what would you think about God? If all you had was the first two chapters of Genesis, you would say God is creative, right? He he, he is creating things. You would say God is joyful, right? Because in Genesis, you know, he's creating stuff and he goes, oh, that's good. 
Oh, that's very good. Like he is enjoying. You would, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, you would think God was happy. Somewhere along the line, we lost that. But, but if you just read Genesis 1 and 2, you would think God is a joyful God. He's even playful. I mean, he makes, you know, he makes the African savanna, the Swiss Alps, you know, sea creatures. Uh, like he's like having fun. He, 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 he's apparently in a good mood or something. And then he gives the prime directive. He says, be fruitful and multiply, which, by the way, you guys, is the one command of God that humanity has actually obeyed. (laughs) There's billions of us now. And you get to the end of chapter 2, and listen to this verse, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, the writer's got my attention. Not because he just said they're naked, but because they felt no shame. I mean, why would he say that? I mean, he could have said any number of things. He could have said the man and woman were naked and they're really happy. I mean, that makes uh, the man and woman were naked and they had the perfect body. I mean, I'm sure they probably, I'm sure Adam was like flexing in the mirror. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Trust me. I mean, they're in the Garden of Eden. Why, why not say they were naked and strong? They were naked and confident. They were naked and up to something. Whatever. They're, I mean, there's a million things you could have said. Why say without shame? Why not without fear? Or without anger or disappointment? How about the, without regret? How about, the, here's one for you. The man and woman were naked and they're without taxes. That would have been good. Why focus on shame? I think it may be that the writer wants us to pay attention to shame, not just because it happens to show up later in the story, but because it has a central role in all that ends in a curse. It is the emotional feature out of which sin emerges. And as such, when we experience shame, we're engaging evil at its most fundamental and deceptive mode of operation. And some of you are like, okay, you're overstating your case. Let's see. Look at the text. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, and as I read this, you need to know, I, I grew, you know, I was a kid in the 70s. I grew up with the Disney version of Jungle Book. So when you read the serpent in the Bible, you must read it with the voice of Ka from Jungle Book goes like this did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the gardens the woman said to the serpent we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden but God did say you must not eat fruit from that tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die Now, just stop there for a second. I want you to notice something. She's already adding to God's words. God did say, don't eat it and you will die, but he didn't say, or touch it. I don't know if you know this. This is where we get in a lot of trouble. As human beings, when we add to God's word, it's what religion does. It's what we do. Let's not talk about everybody. Let's just, how many times have I done that? Verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes 
will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. <laughs> no, sorry, that's too much. That, that's too much. I apologize. I, I apologize. That, that, was, that was too much. I've, I've embarrassed my children now. I apologize. I, I, I started feeling good. I, I don't know. Look what's happening here. The serpent is introducing an element of doubt into Eve's relationship with God and with Adam. Because Adam's right there. I mean, lest it sound like we're coming off, you know, ripping on Eve here. Adam's standing right there. He is, in this verse, the stereotypical passive male. He's not saying anything. (laughs) And so what's happening? Doubt. It, 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 the serpent is placing doubt into his, uh, this, uh, Eve's heart related to God's heart. And as Michael Polanyi has reminded us, when we doubt something, we're simultaneously putting our trust in something else. So if she's going to doubt God's heart, where's she going to place that trust now? In the serpent? In herself? Because there's no suggestion, hey, let's go back to God and check the facts. Right? The serpent does the serpent is happy to have her talk about God rather than to God. Which is what shame does. You know what shame does? Shame involves us in self-talk about God and about others instead of a relationship with God and others. Eve here is being given the opportunity to decide independently of her relationship with God and Adam, who God is, what God thinks, and what God feels. Here, here, Eve, analyze God, judge God rather than interact with him. Here's the problem. You cannot know God apart from a relationship with God. It's the only way to know him. And how many times, before we rip on Eve, how many times have you and I done the same thing? Something happens. I don't know. I thought God loved me. I don't know what God's thinking. And we talk about God rather than just going to him about it. Or how about each other? You know what we do? We impute motives to one another. When someone hurts us, we, we decide that we know what's in their heart. Or it doesn't have to be a big thing. It could be driving to work in the morning. And somebody cuts you off. What's the assumption? They did it on purpose. They wanted to cut me off. Yeah, and we impute motives to them. I I mean, I do this all the time. It's like, I'm pretty sure, actually, that person didn't wake up that morning and go, gee, what could I do today? I know. I'll cut somebody off in traffic, and uh, I hope it's the pastor. (laughs) Probably not. But we impute motives Instead of talking to them, we talk about them. See, the serpent is offering her a new version of truth. You're not going to die. You're actually going to be like God. Watch this. The implication is God doesn't want you to have what he has, which is what? God is holding out on you, Eve. God's holding out on you. The serpent is enticing her to doubt God's heart, which is what he does to us. When he plays to our shame, he wants us to doubt God's goodness, but it's even more than that. See, if God doesn't want you to have what he has, if if God's holding out on you, Eve, you're not as important as you thought you were. You are less than you. You are not enough, Eve. And by the way, Eve, living in union with God is not enough to satisfy that longing in your soul. It's not enough. You're not. You need something else other than God to be okay. What does he put? Shame. And listen, we hear it all the time. 
ads on television are there basically, how do they sell us stuff? With shame. 99% of the ads have a single message. And the message is this. You are not okay as you are. Living in union with God is not enough. If you want to be happy, you got to have jeans that look like this, shoes that look like that. You got to drive a car that looks like that. Live in a house that looks like that. Have a girlfriend that looks like that. You got to have a boat that looks like, you got to have this much money. You got to, and this is where life is to be found. And if you have this, you'll be happy. And it's all a bunch of lies. And the lie is you being in relationship with God is not enough. Listen to me, all sin all idolatry, all coping strategies, all self-medication, which is what addictions are, are ways for me to try to satisfy my hunger for God, my hunger for relationship, my longing to be loved, my desire to be desired, and it all rises from shame, which tells me God is not enough. I am not enough. See, shame, shame in, in, in Genesis 3 is not a sensation that you would categorize. Like, I, like I, I got this hurt on my arm. No, it's being wielded here with intention, with the purpose of ruining the world. Satan is trying to get Eve to believe that there's something so fundamentally wrong with herself that it cannot even be fixed in relationship with God. It's not enough. You need more, Eve. And so shame plunges the human race and all creation into the fall. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Now, we don't know what, what kind of fruit it was. You know, like in art and stuff on TV, it's always an apple. And people say, you know, when Eve ate the apple, well, it does, the text doesn't say. It says fruit. Could have been an apple. Could have been a pear. Could have been a banana. My mother is convinced it was a Godiva chocolate tree, <laughs> which would explain some things, actually. My mom likes chocolate. In fact, one of, one of the boys, it was either one of our boys or one of Paul's boys. We'll go with Paul's. <laughs> they, 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 they were making, we had made comments about how much Nana likes chocolate. And, and they were talking to somebody else at church and said, yeah, you know, my Nana, she's a chocolate alcoholic. <laughs> we're like, I, no, that's, no. And some of you are thinking, there's no such thing as a Godiva chocolate tree. There's no such thing as a snake that talks either, but it happened. So here's here's what's happened. Eve has made a trade. She's traded her relationship with God and her relationship with her husband for a pair. Even if it was a Godiva chocolate pair, that's a bad trade. But it's a trade that you and I all too often make ourselves, and it comes from shame. Do you see how insidious shame is? Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the woman, where are to the man? Where are you? He's not so much asking geographically. He means internally. Like, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I want you to see two things out of that. Number one, hiding is the natural response to shame. Adam and Eve started hiding and we've been hiding ever since. In fact, there's some... People here this morning, 
and, and you're in a room with, I don't know, 500 people, and, and you're hiding. That's the first thing. That, that's the result of shame. We hide. We try to hide. The second thing is this. This is the God of the Bible. He pursues us. He came to find. He comes after us. He didn't just leave Adam and Eve in their sin and go, well, I told you you were dead, so there you go. No. He came after them. This is the God we serve. A lot of people have a picture. Their picture of God is God walking away because somebody you love walked out of your life, and that's your picture of God. That is not how our God is. He doesn't walk away. He walks to you. In Luke 15, Jesus told a parable about the prodigal son, and the father's waiting. And when he was along off, the text says, the father ran to him. Bring a ring, bring sandals, bring a robe. My son is home. This is the God of the Bible. He pursues you. This message is him pursuing you. If, you're, if you are being controlled by sh- some kind of shame in your life, this is God coming after you. Verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she came and gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, that serpent deceived me and I. Listen, shame keeps us from finding healing because it leads to the blame game. If you don't face the sin, you can't find the healing. Shame leads us to blame shifting. And here's here's how deceptive shame is. You think it's going to protect you, but it actually keeps you from the one relationship where you find healing. Because blame shifting keeps you from being vulnerable, and vulnerability is necessary for healing. I, I, listen, I know this firsthand. If you, if you try to keep everybody out, you know, listen, you don't tell everybody everything. Uh, uh, can I just, like, put this caveat in there? Because some people are not mature enough to handle that. But you need to be vulnerable with somebody. I find it fascinating. Don't you find this fascinating? When God comes to Adam, he asks the who question, not the what question. Who told you? I mean, I don't think I would have said that. I would have said, what'd you do, man? Like, did you keep the rule or not? I had one rule, and you couldn't keep that. That's probably what I would have said. But I think God is trying to show us something here of the personal nature of shame and sin. It isn't a neutral it. It is a weapon of a person who is dead set on destroying us. It isn't a neutral what. It's a diabolical who. Who told you? By the way, let me just ask that this morning. Who told you that if you had more money, you'd be happy? Who told you that if you were sexier, you'd be happier? Who told you that? Who told you if you had an Audi A8 LW12 with the auto Titronic Quattro drivetrain, you'd be happy? That may have been your pastor. Forget that one. Go back to the. Who told you you needed a certain pair of jeans to be happy? Who told you that if you had a girlfriend or a boyfriend, then you'd be happy? Who told you if you had this or that, then you'd be valuable? Then you'd be okay? Who told you? Probably the same one that told them. 
So what does God do? There is a curse on the serpent, but embedded in the curse is a promise. There, this is how God is. Right in the middle of a curse, there's a prophecy that shame is going to die. That the death of shame is coming. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. So the cycle, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, which we're not going to do right now, uh, the, the cycle of shame gets replayed over and over and over again in the Old Testament story until one day our Lord Jesus steps in to destroy the cycle. The prophecy of the death of shame comes. And that's my second and final point, which is much shorter than the first one. It's the death of shame. Jesus comes. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. See, many of you have, have read or heard, maybe you saw a movie or whatever, it depicted the, 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 uh, the act of crucifixion, and so you kind of have a little bit of a taste of the suffering involved in crucifixion, but you need to know that ancient people dreaded the shame of crucifixion more than the pain of it. Crucifixion was reserved for those on the bottom rung of the social ladder. It was for slaves and enemies of the state. Roman citizens could not be crucified. Martin Hingle wrote the definitive academic work on the historical practice of crucifixion, and he scoured hundreds of thousands of documents and inscriptions from antiquity, and he found very few references to crucifixion at all because it was so evil, almost nobody talked about it. In fact, the word cross, that we just kind of glibly say the word cross, it, it was considered a vulgar word, and it was never used in polite company. The philosopher Cicero said it, the word cross should never pass through the thoughts, eyes, or ears of a Roman citizen. C.S. Lewis reminds us that the cross was never used in art until everyone who had actually seen a real one had died off. There's no art of, of the cross. I mean, like artwork of it. There's some graffiti of a cross making fun of Jesus that's, that dates when crucifixions were still happening. But until everybody died off who had seen a real one, there was not any used in art. The shame was so great because it was a spectacle event. You were paraded through town and, and the crucified was crucified in a, a prominent place for public humiliation. In fact, Isaiah 50 predicts what crucifixion would be like for Jesus. It says this, verse 6, I give my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I do not hide from shame for they mock me and they spit in my face. In film and in most artwork, the, the, the victim is covered in a loincloth, but in reality, they were crucified naked. Can you imagine the shame? And to make the shame complete, they would then deny them burial so they would become fodder for scavengers. It's no wonder then that the formula that was read when people were sentenced to crucifixion was the following, and I quote, executioner, bind his hands, Veil his head and hang him on the tree of shame. I want you to let this in. The cross was known as the tree of shame. Listen very closely. Jesus hung on the tree of shame so you wouldn't have to. You need not bear the shame of your sin any longer because Jesus already bore it for you. I mean, just follow the logic. Follow the logic for a second. Adam and Eve, as we read earlier, 
disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden and ate of a forbidden tree and ended up naked and ashamed, Jesus, the la- not the second Adam, the last Adam in another garden, this one called Gethsemane, obeys God, gets crucified naked on a tree of shame so that you and I might stand before God unashamed. So if you're trying to carry shame this morning for whatever reason, maybe you did something, maybe somebody else did something, uh, and you're trying to carry that, I want you to know you're trying to bear something Jesus already bore on the cross. That is not who you are anymore. Maybe you did do that. I know y'all, y'all probably did do it. (laughs) Uh, I'm just sorry. Man, I've failed a lot in life. But that's not who I am. You know why? Jesus took that on the cross already, bore it. And here's what happens. Here's what happens, you guys. Even those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a long time. If we allow shame in, shame will make us more aware of our sin than we are God's grace through the cross. I do, sometimes I'm thinking more about how I failed in the past than I am how much Jesus loves me and what he did on the cross. And here's what happens. When you allow shame in like that, you begin to read Scripture. And you're re- here you are. You're reading Scripture, and you're missing the boundless love of Jesus. I mean, that's what the Bible's about. Did you know this? The Bible's about Jesus. That's just the New Testament. The, whole, the Old Testament's looking forward to Jesus. The Gospels are. Here he is. The New Testament's like, he's coming back. He's coming back. But shame will cause us to read that. Instead of feeling the boundless love of Jesus, we just feel condemned for how we've fallen short. And so then the freedom that Jesus grants from the cross gets drowned in a sea of shame. But here's the good news. Jesus on the cross bears not only my sin, though that would be enough. Jesus bore my shame. I don't have to bear it anymore. It's not who I am. Here's how the Old Testament prophesied it. Uh, Isaiah 54, 4. Listen to this. Fear, listen, this is a prophecy and a promise. Isaiah 54, 4. Fear not. You will no longer live in shame. The shame of your youth. And by the way, I think there may be some people here who are carrying shame and you've been carrying it since you were a youth. Or maybe you are a youth right now. The shame of your youth and the sorrows of widowhood will be remembered no more. That is the promise. Here's the New Testament fulfillment. Romans 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now. See the beauty of the gospel is this. You have been forgiven. Your sin has been removed. Your shame has been removed. And that means you can now approach the throne of grace with boldness. Unashamed. One story and I'll be finished. Steve Simmons wrote a book called Wounds That Heal. And the subtitle is Bringing Our Hurts to the Cross. Which I would commend to you. It's a good story. It's a great book about uh, the things that Jesus suffered, the cross and the resurrection and how we apply that to inner healing. And he has a whole chapter on shame and he tells this story. Is that a, um, it was either him or another guy named Steve actually, who were at this um, communion service. And they were singing worship songs, and the people were going to the table as they felt ready, and everybody was sitting in a circle, actually. And 
uh, he said he could feel the presence of God, the strong, just a strong presence of the Holy Spirit was there uh, to heal people, and, and he received communion, and he just felt the presence of God, and he began to look around the room to see who he could pray for, and his eye was caught by a lady who was impeccably dressed, perfect, I mean, uh, everything was accessorized and matching, and, and her makeup was perfect, impeccable um, uh, makeup, and um, he looked at her and he just said, uh, Lord, what can I pray for this woman? And this verse from Romans 9 popped into his head, verse 24, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? So he just prayed for this woman. I don't know, she looks like everything's great with her, you know, but let the blood of Jesus, let the blood of Jesus just purify her conscience so she can worship Jesus. That's, a, that's what Hebrews 9, 24, just let the blood of Jesus. And he's praying for it. He's praying these things, and all of a sudden, she screams, lets out a blood-curdling scream, and falls on the ground. And he's going, did I do that? I mean, like, it's kind of weird. And, and, and some of the ladies get around her, and they're praying, laying hands on her, and they're praying. And she's sobbing, tears falling into the carpet. And after a few minutes, she sits back up in the table or, or in the chair, and the service goes on, and it ends. And Steve goes back to the house where the pastor was. He and his wife were there, and the pastor and his wife were there. And later that evening, the woman comes over to the pastor's home, knocks on the door, and says, I, I'm sorry uh, to come so late, but I wanted to tell you what happened today. And they said, come on in. And when Steve looked at her, he said, man, she, something about her looked different, but he couldn't put his finger on it. She just looked different. And she gave them her testimony. She said when she was young, something had happened to her which had badly damaged her, and she was carrying a lot of shame. And she began to believe that the only way she could be loved was to get men to be attracted to her. And she lived a very promiscuous life. I mean, very promiscuous life in order to just feel loved and accepted. And two years before this, she had gotten born again. And, and when she got saved, she, she left that lifestyle, but she still had this, this thing inside of her that wanted to be needed and wanted men to be attracted to her. And, 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 and even though she wasn't living in the lifestyle, she had this thing on the inside of her, and she carried such shame, crippling, crushing shame for the lifestyle she had lived. But she said, while I was sitting there, I was just minding my own business, and I was thinking, I'm not worthy to receive communion. Shame was gripping her. She said, I just, I don't deserve, I deserve to die. I just don't deserve to receive communion. She said, I looked up and something red came across. She said, I know you're going to think I'm weird, but I saw it. Like I see you right here. Something red came across the room and it stopped right above me. And it was a giant red drop of blood. And then it burst and it fell all over me. And when it did, I fell to the ground, and all of my shame was washed out of me. And she said, it was the first time I ever received communion without feeling shame. And as soon as she said that, Steve looked at her, and he recognized what was different about her. She wasn't wearing any makeup. Not, not that there's anything wrong with wearing makeup, okay? Please don't. Anybody here? Uh, Tim said we shouldn't wear makeup. No, I wear makeup. <laughs> Please, no, that's all right, yeah. God, Mavis, you got me in trouble. Mavis said that. It's the worship leader you gave me. So. Blame shifting, it's, it, it, yeah. Don't do that, don't do that. Back to what I was saying. What was I saying? 
She wasn't wearing makeup. And listen, there's nothing wrong with wearing makeup, but for her, that was a statement that she didn't need makeup to be accepted for who she was. I want you to get from that story, you don't get free from shame by trying harder. If you leave here today and you just say, and then your whole strategy is, all right, for me to get free from shame, I just got to try really hard. That doesn't work. That's what evil wants you to think. You don't fix it in the privacy of your own mental processes. You need someone outside of you. You must encounter the one who conquered shame, and his name is Jesus Christ. I'll close with this verse, Psalm 34. And I was going to close with this verse already, but in prayer this morning with the elders and the pastors, uh, Brother George was led to read this scripture. He didn't even know that we were going to close with this. It says this, Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame.